Good morning and welcome to our survey of John Knox, the Scottish Protestant reformer, uh, born in 1514, died November 24th, 1572. <clears throat> now, before beginning our survey of the life and work of John Knox, we need to set the stage regarding the political and social situation of Scotland during the 16th century. For much of its history, Scotland had been in conflict with England militarily, politically, and socially. England continually sought to dominate Scotland in various ways beginning in the 1100s. Scotland looked for political allies for help in remaining independent. France became a natural ally of Scotland, although the Reformation caused the alliance to become problematic. So this is a little bit on the order of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Scotland and England are continually at odds with one another, and England and France are continually at odds with one another. Um, and so France and Scotland become allies. So France and England, beginning in about 1000 AD, and probably really even going uh, on be before that, were historic enemies and had fought many, many battles through the Middle Ages. Um, with, uh, at, at various times, France was dominating over England and vice versa. And the strife between them increased due to the Protestant Reformation beginning in the 1500s. With Henry VIII's break from Rome and the formation of the Church of England, control of Scotland by France became ever more problematic for England. So religious differences begin to be included in the mix of um, this national strife that's going on. And Scotland's position became increasingly difficult when Protestant ideas found fertile soil in that country. And it is within this difficult political and religious climate that John Knox lived and worked in Scotland and in Europe. To get an idea of how Scotland measures up with England and France, we can compare Scotland with the, the US state of South Carolina in terms of land area, not very big. England is about the size of Louisiana, a little bigger, but not that much bigger. And France is about two times the size of Colorado or a little smaller than Texas. And in the map that you can see up there, Scotland is to the north of England. They share that same tiny little island and um, they were fighting constantly. <clears throat> So John Knox was born near Haddington, Scotland in the southeast part of the country. His father, William Knox, was a merchant, a member of the emerging middle class in Scotland. Like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and others, he was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and became a priest. The priesthood was the only path for those whose inclinations were academic rather than mercantile, agricultural, or military. 
And Knox began his education, like most children of his class, in grammar school. So the children of middle-class families went to schools. The children of the nobility were usually tutored by private tutors in their homes. Okay. He proceeded to further studies at the University of St. Andrews or possibly at the University of Glasgow. He studied under John Major, one of the greatest scholars of the time. Knox was ordained a Catholic priest in Edinburgh on Easter Eve of 1536 by William Chisholm, Bishop of Dunblane. Knox first appears in official church records in 1540 as a priest and a notary at St. Andrews. By 1543, rather than becoming a parish priest, he became the tutor of the children of two Scottish lairds. And lairds is simply the Scottish pronunciation of the English term lords. <clears throat> so Knox was tutored to two sons of Hugh Douglas of Longnadry, and he also taught the son of John Cockburn of Ormiston. Both of these lairds had embraced the new religious ideas of the Reformation. Serving as tutor to the sons of these families meant that Knox was exposed to the new religious ideas that were sweeping Europe and England. And again, keep in mind here, and we've mentioned this in other studies, it was often to the advantage of the nobility of a country to embrace the Protestant reform if the king, or queen as we're going to come to, was Roman Catholic. Because again, the nobility is always trying to assert its power over the throne, and religious conflicts can help the nobility, or at least that's how they probably often thought. It could help them in their quest to uh, you know, either influence the king or queen, or in some cases determine who would become king or queen after the current king or queen died. George Wishart, a Scottish contemporary of Knox, had openly taught Reformation principles throughout Scotland and England. In 1536, Wishart translated the first Helvetic Confession of Faith written by Swiss reformers, Heinrich Bullinger and others, into English. So Wishart would have, would have been translating out of German taking one of these Reformation confessions of faith into English, and I'm sure he was popularizing this confession throughout Swith or rather, uh, Scotland. Wishart's preaching in 1544 to 1545 helped popularize the teachings of Calvin and Zwingli in Scotland. He went from place to place in danger of his life, denouncing the errors of the papacy and the abuses in the Catholic churches of Scotland from east to west. In January 1546, Wishart was seized by Lord Bothwell on the orders of Roman Catholic Cardinal David Beaton and sent to Edinburgh Castle. Knox was present on the night of Wishart's arrest and was prepared to follow him into captivity. But Wishart persuaded him against this course, saying, Nay, return to your bairns, which is Scottish for children, and God bless you. 
one is sufficient for a sacrifice. Cardinal Beaton held a show trial in which Wishart was tried and convicted on charges of heresy. At his trial, Wishart refused to accept that confession was a sacrament, a Roman Catholic uh, doctrine. He denied free will, um, adhering to the uh, Calvinist conception of predestination only, and recognized the priesthood of all believing Christians. At his trial, Wishart rejected the notion that the infinite God could be comprehended in one place between the priest's hands, thereby denying transubstantiation. Again, the Roman Catholic doctrine that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Christ when the priest elevates them during the mass. He proclaimed that the true church was where the word of God was faithfully preached and the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism were rightly administered. He also prophesied that Cardinal Beaton would be killed soon. And Beaton was in fact murdered on May 29, 1546 at his residence in the castle of St. Andrews by a gang of five persons in revenge for Wishart's execution. Knox had avoided being arrested by Lord Bothwell, along with George Wishart, through Wishart's advice to return to tutoring. He went back to Hugh Douglas in Longnidry and resumed his tutoring work. However, Knox and his pupils were in constant danger from the Catholic and pro-French Scottish authorities and were constantly on the move throughout Scotland. The, assassination, the assassinations of Colonel Beaton had, had taken the, uh, rather, the assassins of Colonel Beaton had taken the castle of St. Andrews as their Reformation stronghold and encouraged Knox and his students to come to the castle. The French, under Mary of Guise, regent of the Queen of Scotland, Mary Stuart, who became queen as a child, determined to retake the castle and prevent Scotland from becoming a ref Reformation nation. Henry II, King of France, sent ships and soldiers to the castle of St. Andrews and retook the castle. The Protestant nobles and others who had taken refuge in the castle, including Knox, were taken prisoner and forced to row in the French galleys. The galley slaves were chained to benches and rowed throughout the day without a change of posture, while an officer watched over them with a whip in hand. The galley slaves were threatened with torture if they did not give proper signs of reverence when mass was performed on the ship. Knox later recounted an incident where he was required to show devotion to a picture of the Virgin Mary. He was told to give it a kiss of veneration. He refused, and when the picture was pushed up to his face, he seized the picture and threw it into the sea, saying, let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. <laughs> After that incident, the Scottish prisoners were not forced to do such things again. In the summer of 1548, the galleys returned to Scotland to scout for English ships. Knox health was now at its lowest point due to the severity of his confinement. He was ill with a fever, and others on the ship were afraid for his life. 
Even in this state, Knox recalled, his mind remained sharp, and he comforted his fellow prisoners with hopes of release. While the ships were lying offshore between St. Andrews and Dundee, the spires of the parish church where he had preached appeared in view. James Balfour, a fellow prisoner, asked Knox whether he recognized the landmark. Knox replied that he knew it well, recognizing the steeple of the church at St. Andrews, where he first preached, and he declared that he would not die until he had preached there again. In February 1549, after spending a total of 18 months in the galley prison, Knox was released along with other Scotsmen. Historical records don't clearly show how Knox regained his freedom, but it appears English noblemen made deals with the French for the return of the prisoners. After his release, Knox went to England and began his real work as a reformer under King Edward VI, Henry VIII's son, who was Protestant. While in England, Knox stirred up controversy with his views that the Church of England had too many practices that were straight out of the Roman Catholic mass and theology. Unfortunately, Edward VI died on July 6, 1553 at the age of 15, and he was succeeded by Mary Tudor in 1554. Mary was Catholic and shortly after her accession to the throne, began to restore England to be a Catholic nation once again. Now, Mary Tudor, if you recall your English history, which of course all of you are steeped in, I'm sure, Mary Tudor was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. And Catherine of Aragon was a, a devout Catholic and her daughter, although, although Henry, after he annulled his marriage, got his marriage annulled uh, or declared himself annulled from Catherine, um, Henry made sure that Catherine and Mary could not have any contact. So a rather cruel uh, uh, effort on Henry's part, but he was, he was very con Henry was very concerned that Roman Catholic Catherine of Aragon would continue to spearhead, she would be an informal hero to those English Catholics who wanted to remain Catholic and who felt sorry for Catherine <clears throat> that she had been essentially divorced by Henry. And Mary, her daughter, uh, had, of course, strong feelings for her mother, and so Mary was Catholic. With England no longer safe for Protestant preachers, Knox left for the continent in January 1554 on the advice of friends. On the eve of his flight, he wrote, some time I have thought that impossible it had been so to have removed my affection from the realm of Scotland that any realm or nation could have been equal dear to me. But God, I take to record in my conscience that the troubles present and appearing to be in the realm of England are double more dolorous or sad unto my heart than ever were the troubles of Scotland. And indeed, things were becoming very difficult for Protestants in England 
with Queen Mary, the Roman Catholic. And uh, we'll be talking more about Mary Tudor as we go. Knox first came to Frankfurt, Germany, where there were many uh, Protestant reformers from many different nations. Uh, Frankfurt um, offered relative safety and security for people who had um, what they would have considered probably heterodox or unorthodox uh, religious views. And then he went to that bastion of religious freedom, Geneva, Switzerland, where he spent some time with Calvin. He also stayed with Heinrich Bullinger, another reformer at Zurich, Switzerland. So like many of the reformers, he finally found his way to Switzerland, to the various cities um, that were um, at least somewhat um, hospitable towards people of differing religious views. But Knox was not alone in his exile. The Marian exiles were English Protestants who fled to continental Europe during the 1553-1558 reign of Roman Catholic Mary Tudor, who had become Queen Mary I. She was routinely burning English Protestants at the stake in England, and many of the English uh, nobility who were Protestants and members of the middle class fled to Europe. Many English Protestants settled in various parts of Europe, mainly the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland. There was a large settlement in Frankfurt, Germany. As would be expected, many of the exiles were Protestant clergymen and theologians. The rest were members of the English aristocracy, merchants, tradesmen, artisan, printers, lawyers, etc. And about this time, Miles Cover Coverdale, whom we've discussed in a previous talk, the Bible translator and preacher from England, uh, he was among those who ended up in Europe along with the, the other Marian exiles. Led mainly by Knox, the largest and most politically and theologically radical concentration of English exiles was at Geneva reaching a peak of 233 people or about 140 households. And to, in Geneva to this day, there is a Church of Scotland church where uh, services are still conducted in English in Geneva, Switzerland. <laughs> this was the first English congregation to adopt the entirely Presbyterian form of discipline and worship that had been resisted in Frankfurt. So some of the ideas, the more what we would think of today as the more Calvinistic or Presbyterian uh, Protestant Reformation ideas, uh, you know, the, when we say the Reformation, we're really talking about a lot of different movements, and they had uh, just as many differences as similarities. So you have the Church of England which again, in some people's view, still looked pretty close to Rome and yet did not recognize the Pope and there were other important differences. But for many reformers, the Church of England did not go far enough. And uh, the Scots, many of them were persuaded that they needed to move more radically away from Rome, more towards Calvinism. 
Now, Knox had spent time with Calvin in Geneva and was profoundly influenced by Calvin's theology and religious teachings. And in their discussions, uh, it came about that Knox asked Calvin four difficult political as well as religious questions. The first question was whether a minor could rule by divine right. Again, keep in mind at this point in history, the idea of the divine right of kings that, that they have in essence, kings have in essence the okay from God himself that they are to be on the throne. Uh, now, the second question, very controversial, whether a female could rule and transfer sovereignty to her husband. Now, again, this is taking place in the context of a queen reigning in England. And so, you know, this has become, you know, this is something new in English history. The third question, whether people should obey ungodly or idolatrous rulers. Now, that's a question for the ages. It's a question that people grappled with, Christians have grappled with since the very beginning of Christianity um, on through up until today. And finally, Knox asked Calvin what party godly rulers or godly persons should follow if they resist an idolatrous ruler. Now, Knox had in mind a lot more behind these questions, but these are the questions he posed to Calvin. And we'll come back to those in a little bit. Knox's work in Geneva was laying the foundations for what would become the Church of Scotland, or the Kirk. Knox had become convinced that the Church of England's practices and form of church government was still too close to Rome. Again, he was becoming, not only was he anti-Catholic, but he was becoming anti-Church of England. Knox's work culminated in the Book of Geneva in 1556. Knox's book went through several printings and was used in both the Geneva Church and in Scotland. Sometimes titled Book of Our Common Order, it is the basis for the modern Book of Common Order used by Presbyterian churches today. The English church in Geneva was also where the Geneva Bible was produced, which was to be the most popular English version of the era. The Geneva Bible was also most well known for its annotations that supported reformed theology and hinted at political resistance. At Geneva, Knox wrote his infamous first blast of the trumpet blown against the monstrous regiment of women during the win winter of 1557-58. So this is a long title for what started out as a short book, but Knox uh, in subsequent editions elaborated on it. Uh, it was published in Geneva in the spring of 1558, and it denounced all female rulers in the most strident language. <clears throat> and here you can see, uh, I don't know how well, how easily you can see that, but 
the the uh, picture up there is the title page from a 1766 edition of Knox's work, and the spelling is a little bit modernized um, compared to how the spelling would have been in, in Knox's day. Now, why did Knox write this? Um, I thought he was just a religious reformer, right? But the problem is, in the 1500s and 1600s and a lot of other parts of human history, religion and politics get inevitably inextricably intertwined and mixed up so that politics and religion become <laughs> uh, something rather explosive, and Knox's book did just that. Knox's book was directed against Queen Mary I of England. We've already talked about her, Mary Tudor, and she reigned in England from July 1553 to November 1558. Not a very long reign, but long enough to kill a lot of English Protestants. And Mary I was Roman Catholic. Now Knox also directed his book at Mary Queen of Scots. This was Mary Stuart who reigned from 1542 to July 1567. She was also Roman Catholic. And Mary Stuart had been, even though she was Scottish nobility, she had been raised in France, educated in France, and really didn't come to Scotland until she was an adult. Her mother was Mary of Guise, that infamous French noblewoman who persecuted, and we, you know, we could do probably two weeks on Mary of Guise, and, uh, but that would be taking us far afield. Um, Mary of Guise, in her native France, had been busy persecuting French Protestants, or the Huguenots. So, Knox was not just opposed to the religion of these queens, however, as bad as that was in his view. Knox's work had three points. Gynarchy, which is government by women, it comes from a Greek root word, is repugnant to nature. In other words, this is unnatural. It's a contumely, an old-fashioned word for offensive or an offense to God. And it's the subversion of good order. Knox sought to show that political rule by a queen was unbiblical and contrary to the natural order of things. Knox argued, God by the order of his creation, has deprived woman of authority and dominion and from history that man has seen, proved, and pronounced just causes why it should be. So in other words, <laughs> partly, well, men just say it's bad, so it's bad. All right, and here we have Mary I of England, Bloody Mary as she was known to the English Protestants. Um, that picture's rather dark, unfortunately, um, but uh, she's a pretty stern-looking woman, um, and she was very militant about getting rid of Protestantism in, in England. Knox appealed to the common belief that women were supposed to come after men because Eve came after and from Adam. Furthermore, God's anger against Eve for taking the forbidden fruit had continued, and all women were therefore punished by being subjected to men. 
In his analysis of the creation, Knox furthered his argument by stating that women were created in the image of God only with respect to creatures, not with respect to man, which I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and it doesn't make much sense to me. But, you know, think about it and let me, you know, if you want to let me know what you think. Knox believed that men were a superior reflection of God and women were an inferior reflection. Easy for him to say. All right, and here we have Mary, Queen of Scots. And she became Mary I of Scotland. Knox had discussed these points with Calvin. Again, think back. Knox had brought these questions up almost in a, as if it, he was discussing hypotheticals with Calvin. He never really... Um, was crystal clear with Calvin why he was asking these questions. Now, Calvin had not agreed with Knox. Calvin argued that God had given authority to biblical female leaders Deborah and Huldah in the book of Judges. But, Knox said, God had not given that authority to any female in the 16th century. In other words, these are different times. That doesn't, you know, these biblical examples don't apply at this time in history. <clears throat> and further, according to Knox, Deborah and Huldah did not claim the right to pass on their authority, but the queens did. So Knox is raising an issue that does become of some significance because if these queens get married, who do they marry? They marry princes generally from other countries. And in those marriages, and this was very common in that time period, if a queen or a king marries a, you know, someone from another, a noble or a royal from another country, that allies the two countries. And it means they are, in essence, one. And, for example, if you're Scottish, and not only are you pro-Scotland, but you may be Protestant, so you're, you know, pro for the reform, and you want to have a Scottish king or queen who will rule your nation and not be caught up in international entanglements and, you know, cause problems for the country. Because after all, what do kings and queens do? They raise taxes. Who do they tax? The common people, the, the emerging middle class. Why do they tax? Because they're always fighting wars. So if you have a queen who's on the throne and she marries somebody from another country, you know, the resources, thinking, thinking of it from the point of view of Knox, the resources of Scotland are tapped to fight foreign wars. And, you know, certainly a lot of us would probably agree with Knox that this is definitely problematic. So Knox, you know, refuted Calvin by saying, you can't really use Deborah and Huldah as an example of what we've got here with queens of England and Scotland who are, you know, they have the potential to do harm to these nations. One of Calvin's arguments was that gynarchy was acceptable since Moses had sanctioned the daughters of Zelophehad in Numbers 27 to receive an inheritance. So if you don't remember your Numbers 27, you can go back and read it. And in that passage, it talks about the daughters of a man 
who had no sons, and ordinarily, as in most patriarchal cultures, and it has been pretty much the custom for all of mankind throughout all of human history, women could not inherit, only sons could inherit from their fathers. However, an exception was made here, and it had divine sanction. This, this was approved by God himself. But Knox refuted this by saying that receiving an inheritance was not equivalent to gaining a civil office. Calvin had told Knox that Mary I's rule was sanctioned because the English parliament and the general public had agreed to it. Mary had ascended the throne. You know, England had said, you know, certainly the Protestants in England didn't like her, uh, feared her, left England, but the majority of English Catholics uh, were more than happy that there was a Catholic ruler on the throne. Knox countered this in his work, The First Blast, by stating that it did not matter if man agreed to a particular rule or form of government if God did not agree to it as well. And finally, Knox disagreed with Calvin on the idea that gynarchy could be acceptable because it was a national custom. Knox conversely believed that biblical authority and God's will made Calvin's argument invalid. So here is this firebrand, firebrand really, even though he wasn't burned at the stake or anything like that, uh, Knox, Knox really developed a reputation as a firebrand. He was combative, he was argumentative, he was uh, always stirring up trouble, even with the renowned John Calvin. Now, most Christians in the 16th century believed it was their Christian duty to always follow their monarch, because after all, the monarch is a Christian. Again, this is set in the backdrop of all of a nation is Christian. There is no such thing as plurality of religious practice. There is no such thing as religious freedom. You know, if the monarch is Catholic, the whole country is Catholic, and if you're a Protestant, you're more or less labeled a heretic, and bad things will happen to you, and you'll probably have to leave. On the other hand, in Protestant lands, if the monarch is Protestant, the whole country is Protestant, and depending on some Protestant rulers um, in various parts of Europe uh, were not as uh, devoted to persecutions of Catholics as Catholics were Protestants, but there was still a lot of persecution of Catholics in Protestant lands. So it was pretty much a one, uh, you know, a unitary system, a totalitarian system of sorts, if you think of it that way. One religion, and that is the religion of the ruler. Now, Knox believed it was worse for a Christian to follow a ruler that was evil. He claimed that if needed, a rebellion should take place to dethrone an evil queen. So now he's advocating for rebellion. So now he's become truly revolutionary. Many in Scotland agreed with Knox that it was not natural for women to rule, but they did not agree with his belief that the queens should be replaced. Because of Knox's bold call to action, his contemporaries began to consider Knox as a revolutionary. 
Knox's work, The First Blast, created problems for him, not surprisingly, not just in Scotland, but in England as well. Queen Mary of England, Bloody Mary, died on November 17, 1558. And of course, we know who came next. That was Elizabeth I. And there's a picture of Elizabeth um, shortly, uh, apparently this portrait was painted um, shortly after she assumed the throne. Now, Elizabeth was the half-sister of Bloody Mary. So Catherine of Aragon was Mary's mother, wife of Henry VIII. Anne Boleyn, mother of Elizabeth, was Henry's second wife. One of her first actions as queen was the establishment of an English Protestant church, of which she became the supreme governor. So now we have a queen who says, I'm queen of the country, I'm the political ruler, and I'm also head of the church, the Church of England, because the church and state were completely fused, and they were fused into one person, the sovereign. And it is this way in the Church of England to this day. So whoever is king or queen of England is the head of the Church of England. This Elizabethan religious settlement was to evolve into what we consider today to be the Church of England. Knox had published the first blast anonymously and did not tell Calvin, who denied knowledge of it until a year after its publication, that he had written it. So he kind of did an end run around Calvin and you know, Calvin had to work to kind of disassociate himself from this truly revolutionary call um, that Knox had put forward. Now, in England, the pamphlet was, would started out as a pamphlet, later became a book. The pamphlet was officially condemned by royal proclamation. The impact of the document became further complicated when Elizabeth Tudor became Queen of England and although Knox had not targeted Elizabeth directly, he had deeply offended her, and she never forgave him. Because after all, all these queens were relatives. They all came from the same families. <laughs> With a Protestant on the throne, the English refugees in Geneva prepared to return home. And Knox himself decided to return to Scotland before his departure, various honors were conferred on him, including what was called the freedom of the city of Geneva. And this is similar with being presented with the key to the city. And, and this is a custom, it's not, it's probably long since dead in the United States, but it used to be the custom when a, if a city wanted to confer honors upon a particular person, they would give that person the key to the city. Now, think of, okay, so in the Middle Ages, cities had walls, big high walls to keep out enemies. Uh, so if you have a walled city, you've got to have gates. If you have gates, they have to be locked in times of trouble when the enemies are trying to get in. But then there are times of relative peace where you can unlock the gate. So if you have the key to the city, that means again, thinking in medieval terms, you have free access into the city. You are a friend of that city, um, and you're welcome in it. 
So Knox left Geneva in January 1559, but he did not arrive in Scotland until May, owing to Elizabeth's refusal to issue him a passport through England. She didn't want him anywhere in England. <clears throat> Although England had a Protestant queen, Scotland still had the Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots. The French Mary of Guise, mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, was the regent of Scotland until Mary became an adult, but she had died in 1560. Now, European Protestantism hung in the balance. For Mary Stuart, Mary, Queen of Scots, was now also Queen of France, having married Francis II of France in 1558. So now you've got the monarch of Scotland married to the monarch of France. So the alliance between France and Scotland is cemented in this marriage. And thus, Scotland is tied to Catholic France, and it thus isolates Protestant England. You know, so Scotland's in the north, England's in the middle, France is south of England. Um, so you've got Protestant England, you know, kind of hanging out to dry there. Catholics in England and Scotland thought Mary had a stronger claim to the English throne than Elizabeth. If Mary, Queen of Scots, is Queen of Scotland, and she's related by blood and marriage to the same family that Elizabeth comes from, she may have an even stronger claim to the throne of England. And, you know, so a lot of these Catholics were beginning to propose that Mary be not just Queen of Scots, but she should be Queen Mary II of England and they should get rid of Elizabeth. So Scotland was torn between Catholic and Protestant factions. Mary's illegitimate half-brother, the Earl of Moray, was a leader of the Protestants in Scotland, but she did not move against him. Um, you would think Mary, Queen of Scots, would do what Bloody Mary in England had done, and that she would actively persecute the Protestants, but she did not. John Knox was free to preach, and he preached against Mary, condemning her for hearing mass, dancing, and dressing too elaborately. Mary summoned Knox to her presence to remonstrate or to chastise him, but she was unsuccessful. She later charged him with treason, but he was acquitted and released. Now, Mary's husband, Francis II, the French king, died in December of 1560. But at this point, Mary began to focus her claim to the English throne. So she's lost to France now. With the death of Francis, she's no longer co-regent or queen of France. So now she starts looking at, maybe I can depose Elizabeth and I can take over England. About the same time as Mary, Queen of Scots, arrived in Scotland from France, so this is backing up a few years, the Scottish Parliament, you know, so here we've got a monarch who's Catholic and a parliament that has ratified the 25 articles of the Calvinist Confession of Faith a thoroughly pro-Protestant parliament. Knox and his associates had prepared this confession of faith. And they also cut Scotland's ties with Rome, annulled previous anti-Protestant acts or laws, and condemned the mass. 
A book of discipline was also prepared, and although it was not approved by Parliament, its proposals for the government of the Scottish Church were accepted by the General Assembly of the Church. This work provided a constitution and disciplinary rules for the Reformed Church of Scotland. The government of the church was organized on the principle of democratic assemblies, beginning with the parish church and extending upward through the synods to the general assembly. Representative leadership in church government was developed through the elected and ordained elders or presbyters. The goal was to follow the New Testament pattern of church government and worship. The Scottish Church, with its Presbyterian system, thus differed from the Anglican Episcopal Church with its bishops and more, quote-unquote, Catholic forms of worship. The principle of popular or representative leadership in Scotland, however, meant that the church there had a much greater impact on the lives of the people. The English clergy, often drawn from the ranks of the younger sons of the nobility and not too well educated for the ministry, were also less popular and less respected than their Scottish counterparts. In 1559, Knox began writing the history of the Reformation in Scotland in five volumes. He finished the work in 1566. Conditions in Scotland worsened, not surprisingly, and soon developed into a civil war between Catholics and Protestants. Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, was forced to abdicate when her second husband, Lord, because Francis had died, she married Lord Darnley, but then he was murdered, and she married his murderer, the Earl of Bothwell. There's a story in and of itself right there, I'm sure. Mary's infant son was crowned uh, as James VI on July 29th, 1567, Knox preached James VI's coronation sermon at the church in Stirling. So this little baby was baptized uh, and then coronated because Mary had to abdicate. She had, after all, married the murderer of her husband and she was forced to abdicate. Knox continued to preach and write despite the continuing warfare between Protestant and Catholic Scottish nobles. He died on November 24, 1572, in his bed. Not at the stake. Now, what is Knox's legacy? Knox presents us with some paradoxes. Knox was a minister of the Christian gospel who appeared to advocate violent revolution. He was considered one of the most powerful preachers of his day, but only two of the hundreds of sermons he preached were ever published. He is a key figure in the formation of modern Scotland, yet there is only one monument erected to him in Scotland. His grave is unmarked. In fact, nobody knows where his grave is today. Um, during the English Civil War, I believe, uh, his 
all kinds of things happen and hit, you know, hit, I mean, we just don't know where he's buried <laughs> at this point. Somebody thinks, uh, there's some people who think he's buried under what they would call in England a car park or a parking lot. Though he remains a paradox to many, Knox was clearly a man of great courage. One man standing before Knox's open grave at his death said, here lies a man who neither flattered nor feared any flesh. Knox's legacy is large. His spiritual progeny includes some 750,000 Presbyterians in Scotland, three million in the United States, millions through Canada and the rest of the British Commonwealth today and millions throughout the world. And finally, this picture, um, again, a little dark, but it is a stained glass window from a church in Long, a Presbyterian church in Long Beach, California. And it is a picture of Knox remonstrating or, or scolding uh, Mary Queen of Scots. <laughs> so <laughs> an odd thing to, to, to make a, uh, I think it's an odd picture, <laughs> to, especially to make as a stained glass window in a church, but uh, it uh, preserves the history for us. And I, I'm sorry I've gone so long. There was just a lot of material on Knox, uh, but I didn't feel it was enough to, to do two weeks on. Um, so uh, before we close, are there any final questions or thoughts? How many of you like John Knox? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, controversial figure, certainly. Um, and he had views that don't, on many things that don't really square with our postmodern views, even as Christians in the 21st century. Um, and of course, you know, what, how do we feel about kings and queens in general these days? I don't think any of us would really like to be living in a kingdom as it was constituted in those days. I think we very much like our uh, religious and civil freedoms that we enjoy in this country and that we are very blessed to have. Um, so thank you. And that concludes our series on, or our talk on John Knox. Thank you. <laughs>